0: Hi, I'm Todd Billings, and this is the End of the Christian Life Podcast. The Christian Life is a story, a story of one victory after another, right? That might seem like good news. But as I discovered anew in writing my book, The End of the Christian Life, that's not the Bible's story. And let's be honest, our lives don't exactly fit that story either, even on our best days. In this podcast, you are invited to journey with me as I talk to people who have thought deeply about what it means to live as a mortal before the everlasting God. I discovered them in the process of writing my book and I'm still learning from them. These wise souls have walked in the dark valley themselves and with others. So let's get started. I am really excited today to have Dr. Ephraim Radner with me for a conversation. Dr. Radner is a priest in the Anglican Church and professor of historical theology at Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto. Not too far from me in West Michigan, actually. But today we are going to talk about a book of his. He's the author of quite a few books, but one of them in particular was really formative for me to read individually and then with a group later as i wrote my book it's called a time to keep theology mortality and the shape of a human life thank you so much ephraim for joining me for this conversation
1: well my pleasure to be here todd thanks for inviting me
0: yeah so this book is a challenging book and a profound book in a lot of different ways and maybe i'll start actually by just reading a quote from the preface that gets at it a little bit and then asking some of the background of what interested you in human mortality as an underdeveloped theological idea for the church today. This is a quote that was just very striking to me where you state your argument that to have a body and deploy it is to be bound up with the fact that we are born and we die within a short span of years. And this being born and dying is itself, in all of its biology of connection, memory, and hope, a mirror of and vehicle for the truth of God's life as our creator. So in some ways, I guess that's the ending point <laughs> toward, toward which your book points. But when in your ministry and congregational life or other points in your life, did you get a sense that we have lost a sense of what it means to be embodied and mortal before God, our creator?
1: Um, Todd, I probably don't have a simple answer to that. I, In the book itself, I described a little bit about how I got into writing it, reflecting on the questions, uh, the debated questions of sexuality, initially in the church and the larger society, which I sort of got involved with inevitably because I'm an Anglican and questions of sexuality have riven Anglican churches around the world uh, and its international communion.
0: Yeah, um, for decades now. For
1: decades and in in ways no different than in, in many churches, but in ways that are that have been far clearer, clear-cut perhaps, and more openly talked about as -hmm. well. And obviously, one place where the debate over sexuality comes to a head in our culture and our period is the question of procreation and the way that procreation sort of has been demoted uh, as an end, defining end of sexual relations. And you can Mm -hmm. see that in marriage services and so on, where procreation you know, for uh, almost 2,000 years within the Christian church was viewed as the primary end of married life and and of sexual life. And then somewhere in the 20th century, procreation became first a a good, but not not the first good of marriage. And then it became a, a third, a tertiary good. And finally, it became completely optional as a way of defining what sexual relations were. So to me trying to engage the question of sexuality from a Christian perspective the reality and meaning of procreation seemed very central and what it happened to to change that meaning and its place in Christian imagination and doctrine and practice and so on. Now, of course, procreation, it became very clear to me, has to do with, obviously, beginning life, uh, mm-hmm. conceiving and having life be come to be and birth. But if you look at it even more extensively, procreation is bound to the other side of that limit on human life, which is death. And so as I began to think about why and how procreation shifted in in its place in Christian imagination and practice, that question of birth and death loomed ever larger. And Mm -hmm. it it pressed me to think about, well, how is that? How how have those realities shifted? Let me just add to that, personally, you know, I became a father 30 years ago. And, you know, there are all kinds of things that happen when one becomes a parent physically. Physically. Uh, then emotionally and then intellectually. And I'll be honest, I've had some struggles with my life uh, as a, as a parent, with the health of my children and, and as a, as a, as a son, Uh, I've had struggles with my own parents and so on that have focused around health and death and so on. Uh, But that also, as I began to think about procreation and its relationship to sexuality also made me realize that the experience and self-understanding of my own being as a person who gives life and sees life disappear wasn't being spoken to in many ways. Where do you go to learn about this? Who's teaching you about what it means to be born and to die or what it means to have your children be born or to die or your parents and so on? Where do you learn about that? It became clear to me, it isn't just about sexuality, but more deeply, about the human person, it became clear to me that the church didn't have all that much to say about it. Hmm. Obviously, we talk about these matters, but it's not a central part of the teaching of what it means to be a human person uh, created by God, nor are there practices that help form us. And again, in teaching these matters, it became clear to me that that's a recent shift, that for centuries, the church has had deeply, widely and carefully elaborated and articulated ways of of teaching about birth and death that has simply disappeared Hmm. uh in the Hmm. in the 20th let alone the 21st century anyway Hmm. i've been talking uh, jump in
0: (laughs) yeah your description of that in the book really resonated with me partly because i had seen something different in a couple years in east africa where I remember when I was in Uganda, when I would introduce myself to some new people in a village where I was in a remote area, it was around 50% infant mortality rate for you know, children under five. And so people, the first identification, you know it's not, this is my occupation or that sort of thing. They would say who they are, and then they would say, I have seven children, three are living or I have five children, two are living. Chronicling both the birth and death was so central to human identity. And I went back to one of my journals a while ago on that, and I remember saying, death is everywhere here. Like It's just a part of the everyday life, like the staple food. And so then when you write in the book, this is page 31, death has increasingly become no longer a part of life where it had once supplied life its background threads running into its colors it seems like in some ways this is a reflection on what happens when death becomes distant and infant mortality rates become much lower and and so on
1: right and and what you just said about uh, how people introduce themselves to you in uganda is exactly the same experience I had. I, I worked for four years early in my ministry in Burundi, very close to Uganda, and mm, exactly mm-hmm. the same sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, nine kids. I have nine kids, you know, five living or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the, other, the other example I often use to show the shift is the way the war, English word tragedy has um, changed its meaning the tragedy, you know based on a Greek context of a certain kind of drama and so on, tragedy used to mean a certain kind of inevitability. It could be difficult, uh, inevitability, but it wa- it was it was something that pursued you. It was it was who you were, the gods, whoever. you couldn't escape it, however difficult it was. The word tragedy now means something that's utterly inexplicable shouldn't have happened and for which uh, it's an utter surprise. Somebody crosses the street and gets hit by a bus, and it's a tragedy. But it it means it's absurd. It's total it's a nonsense. Sur-
0: nonsense in a yeah, sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: And and that's the complete opposite of what tragedy used to mean. How did that happen? And that goes to your point about death. Death is a tragedy now in the sense for many people in their experience. I'm talking about mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that it's totally unexpected, and they've been taught that it's unexpected. Uh, mm-hmm. we have been taught that we should uh, we, we only encounter it out of the blue mm-hmm. when in fact for much of human history until very recently it was assumed that this wasn't out of the blue it was the blue it was it was the ground of our life hmm. um, that is to say death was part of our life hmm. um, as you say all around it people going back to your image of how people introduced themselves in Uganda with respect to their children alive and dead. You know, People have done these studies of the relationship of children, uh, parents to their children in, in the Middle Ages and Western Europe and so on. There was a long, mm. uh, well, relatively long with respect to the 20th century scholarship view that, well, children died so often that parents didn't connect to their children. They, they, they sort of automatically, unconsciously tried not to be too close so that they didn't have the same, the same intimacy. A feeling for their children. You don't have children's graves and you don't have markers for their children and epitaphs for children and so on. And it was a kind of self-protection because as you said, until the 20th century, mortality rate, uh, uh, infant mortality rate before five was close to 40% in general, I mean, up and down depending, but pretty high. But more recent scholarship has said that's probably not true. The notion that parents love their children less because they were more likely to die young. Uh, That's, I think that's been debunked, not totally, but what it does mean nonetheless is that parents had a very different sense of who they were in relationship to others and to the world at large, given the fragility of what they loved most deeply. That Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you love less, but it does mean that the way you love is colored. It has a different tint to it and the way you experience it. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I remember reading a transhumanist author as I was preparing for the book about two years ago, and one who thinks that, you know, some people living now will live for a thousand years or could live for a thousand years, you know, death and or the end of life is all under human control. And some people said in response, oh, wow, that would make the fear of death just go away, wouldn't it? But it seems like when death is out of our sights and we assume it applies to other people, it has its power still as we you know, try to stay safe and in control because we don't think the world is a dangerous place. Um, whereas it used to be the assumption death was all around all the time.
1: Well, and that that change. Now, in the book, I make a lot of a sort of socio-historical theory about something called the great health transition.
0: Yeah. Why don't you unpack that a little bit?
1: I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's based on historical demographics that have studied average lifespans of the human race, as far as we can determine them. And it's pretty obvious that until about 1900, give or take, the lifespan of the average human being, the average human lifespan rather, began a a rapid increase. So that if you look, for instance, at the average lifespan in Canada in 1900, it was 40, 40 years old, Hmm. which represents a fairly steady, again, give or take, uh, lifespan in much of human history as people have been able, uh, population experts have been able to determine it. Um, that doesn't mean that uh, when you say the average lifespan was 40 that everybody dies most people die uh, around 40 because as you mentioned earlier a lot of the what draws that down is infant mortality and uh, mortality among younger people nonetheless it means that you didn't have that many people who lived to 60 80 or 90 so that's 1900 in Canada and in 2000 the average lifespan in Canada is 80 it doubled in 100 wow. years. yeah, And that is the standard uh, with variation. That is what has happened around the world, by and large, in the last 100 years. In many places uh, outside of industrialized Europe and North America, it took longer or later for it to happen, Africa and so on. But it's already happening there too. As I said, a lot of it has to do with infant mortality, as well as maternal mortality women giving birth to children died at a very high rate. Until the 19th century in England uh, and many other places, pregnancy was often called an illness. That doesn't mean it was bad. It was good, but it was an illness that was very dangerous. It was kind of like a disease that you hope you could recover from pregnancy in a positive way. And it wasn't until the late 19th century that they figured out that midwives and doctors washing their hands Made a huge difference, you know. Yeah. So what happened around 19, You know, late nineteenth century, there were some gradual increases in lifespan in Europe, uh, beginning really in the eighteenth century. But a big, big jump uh, around nineteen hundred takes place with a confluence of different things, like washing hands at childbirth. Uh, then you have drugs, including. Um, Uh, antibiotics and so on and so forth. You have better nutrition, better hygiene, sewers and and running water and this, that, and the other sort of uh, in the industrialized countries comes to be. And you see this sudden, it really is sudden within a few decades, average lifespans just expand. Now, what that does, especially by taking out the experience of death at an early age you know, before nineteen hundred, you could assume that you had had siblings die,
0: yeah. or you mm-hmm. had you
1: knew your friends uh, as children who had died, mm-hmm. or you had a parent or both parents or uncles or aunts. You could okay. assume that anybody walking around at any age had experienced the death of somebody very close to them.
0: So basically, they would have had the experience of like a present-day hospice worker in right. terms of being with someone right. who's dying, whereas yeah, today...
1: People are dying at the same rate they always
0: die. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> that so, hasn't
1: changed. It's so, 100%. Still so hovering right around 100%. Yep. <laughs> um, but it's a question of when that reality uh, is faced and how it forms one. And um, you know, we're a funny culture in, in the West in which death is both uh, veiled in many ways from our personal experience. And on the other hand, we are exposed to it with a certain kind of overwhelming repetitiveness in the images of, of the, both the news or, or video games or, or or what have you, Catholic Church has talked about a culture of death, but that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean that everybody understands it or feels it in the same way. It, it's a funny kind of a culture of death. Death leaps out at us, mm-hmm. and we're not prepared for it, and it and, mm-hmm. and it doesn't shape who we think we are.
0: It it seems like the uh, everyday experience of life, death is not supposed to be a part of that. Like it's part of the drama of Hollywood or the drama of the news, but even to see in our everyday physical limits a reminder of, Hey, I'm dying. Um, I didn't
1: see a dead body until I was 22, maybe.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: And uh, I was on a, I was in seminary and was doing a mission internship in the Philippines. And I was with the church. A uh, priest took me around. I went to a funeral home and there was a 13-year-old girl uh, who was in a coffin for viewing. It was the first time I'd ever seen. I mean, it was, and it was, I asked students, you know, have you seen a dead body? When did you see one? Who was it? And I would say that a good two-thirds, and we're talking about people in there, 20s, even late 20s, have either never seen a dead body or it's been in a very sort of sanitized and distanced kind of way. Uh, mm-hmm. In a hospital, uh, a grandparent who has died and maybe you see them probably not even in the hospital, in the funeral home. Of course, that's all yeah. changed too. You don't see dead bodies anymore in churches. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, now, as I say, hundred years ago, if you asked who has seen a dead body, you could ask a a kindergarten and they'd all raise their hand.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I recall a friend of mine who had a young child die and, you know, there was a big outpouring of care from the community sort of early on, but there's also a sense of, can easily be sense of loneliness. Like this is never supposed to happen and it was actually walking through a cemetery was a calming place because mm-hmm. there were so many. If it's a cemetery that has, is, you know, 100, 150 years old, there are so many young children buried in cemeteries. There are so many fellow <laughs> parents there who have buried. They're young and it's still so, really I, happening all around the world. But yeah.
1: And obviously the, the main point around all of this from a theological perspective is that this shapes our understanding of who God is and what our relationship is with God and what it means to be a faithful person. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's just one little, you know, file. There's the death file, and then there's the, I don't know, the the study file and the serve the poor file. And no, no, this is a fundamental, this isn't a file. This is sort of laying out the groundwork of who we are before God. It shapes how we think we're meant to do mission, how we are to live. Uh, You just mentioned the cemetery thing. I went and visited, uh, I taught a course in, in Tunisia this past summer, and the Anglican church there is the earliest Christian church uh, that they had built there. It goes back to the mid-19th century. And you have this set of missionaries. They've all got in the yard in front of the church, you know, memorial placards. And you look at, you look at their lives. A, most of them died when they were
0: mm-hmm.
1: late 30s, 40. And hmm. then you have the memorials to their children who died while they were there,
0: hmm. you know,
1: 10 years old and so on and so forth. And I, I thought to myself, well... You know if somebody says you're called to be a minister of Jesus Christ, this is what <laughs> this is what you have to look forward to. I think you know, and you know, I, I can only speak for my seminary. I think most people would be shocked. yeah, um, yeah. and I don't think it was shocking in the nineteenth century. You could go to Tunisia in the nineteenth century because even if you stayed in England, the same thing might have been true. There was yeah. something about before the twentieth century, something that put poor and rich together, different parts of the world together, people on an equal footing with one another and before God in a way that today our socioeconomic differences and experiences masks precisely because, if you will, mortality has been taken off as the the thing that joins us.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, One thing I wondered about in reading your book was are there ways in which this mask toward our common mortality that we have in places where the great health transition has happened? Are there ways in which this cultural mask distorts what we see in the Bible and receive in the Bible? I remember again, even back in Uganda thinking of in how people describe themselves, it's, you know, Even in terms of family, in terms of clan, and how images like the children of Abraham take on a different sense, or the fact that when God dramatically intervenes in the Old Testament, it's often to fill a barren womb. Like this is this is the big sign and wonder, the big ooh and ah, you know, it's not getting the ancient world equivalent of a Rolls Royce or something. It's it's to fill a barren womb. Somehow, that when I was in Uganda, some of those images seemed to have much more power than the culture that I was coming from. And 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 what do we what do we do about that if there is if there is a masking going on there? Right.
1: Well, so I mean, you've gotten back to my opening remarks about how I got into this whole question, which was procreation. Yeah. Um, one of the things I I think I stress towards the end of the book, certainly, is that what a, if you will, a culture of mortality or a vision of our mortality, which is fundamental to us, can do is it can, I suppose it could make you despair of all things. Uh, you know, and there is a whole tradition philosophically. In other words, it's even in the Bible, you know, our, our, we're like grass, uh, mm-hmm. we're like a shadow. Mm-hmm. We pass away. Now you can move on and then uh, say- A certain and type
0: of holy despair. Right? Yeah.
1: Nothing, nothing is worth anything anyway. But biblically, that's not what's done with that recognition of transience and so on. What's done with it biblically is it's turned to God, yet the word of the Lord endures forever. It's God who then is, is sort of comes up in a, in a new profile of sublime, majestic, overwhelming, comprehensive reality. And the life that we have, we recognize as being utterly gift from mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. So sort of the fragility of our lives ends up, biblically speaking, underlining the grace that life is. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, a grace which is obviously the grace of God. But that also then in a human terms means that the way we are faithful to this God who who alone grants us life, and it's all utterly his, uh, is that we're faithful to how God offers us this life. And that's precisely within the relationships of birth and growth and family affiliation as a word I use, the fact that we Mm -hmm. are connected uh, genealogically. Uh, we then ourselves give birth uh, if we are able to and granted that grace you mentioned you know the the place of barrenness and the miracle of birth is central in the bible mm-hmm. as it is in many cultures and always has been but not today mm-hmm. so the difference is then today in our culture life is optional life mm-hmm. is not the one thing that defines us as being uh, granted this gift that we are from God is the thing that we kind of uh, can make decisions about within some realm of autonomy and freedom um, as well as without having to take seriously, I, I think anyway, this would be my judgment without having to take seriously the fact that we have no claim over it such that we can make these decisions and, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. It's all gods. Life is mm-hmm. all gods. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the major things that our mortality unveils for us and, and, and
0: signifies. And there's a certain portrait of God that appears in that on, on one page you say, to announce our creaturehood is to proclaim God, which is striking. But it's not a God of our personal preferences, <laughs> It seems any more than I can just choose. Oh, I don't really want to opt for this creaturely thing where I have to go through birth and growth and dying, and you know, it's it's not an elective choice. Right. Even about who God is as creator, um, or I think God should have done things differently. Well, I mean, we can lament and we can hope but it seems like in the book there's something about a creaturely posture that has a certain sense of maybe the fear of god and even a fear of life <laughs> uh, or right right i it,
1: it, certainly it changes the way we order our values one of the things i struggle with todd and I, I don't i'm not sure what to think of this is to what degree do I, as, a, as an individual struggling in my own life, to what degree do I see death as good? Mm-hmm. Or is it all mm-hmm. evil?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And And you know Christianity has, I, I'd be the first to say this, taught generally based on mostly on things Paul says that that death is an evil.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I think that that's a that's a too simplistic way of reading. Uh, mm-hmm. the biblical witness as a whole but but on the other hand he's willing to die and go live with Christ not willing he can desire it yeah. and there's there's a place where death can be desired anyway if if our life is all God's then our deaths are not just all ours they're they're also God's somehow mm-hmm. and and the challenge to me is to know how to have faith in that and to have trust in the fact that my death belongs to God And thus is good, but as you just said, it's good in a way that is deeply disturbing, in some sense, (laughs) that I can't put together. It's not an easy trust. I do wish, I wish I had been taught some of this. I wish somebody had taught me that this isn't so easy to sort out, Mm -hmm. and therefore that my relationship with God in the face of my death, or the death of those I love, and the death of those I live with, is something I need to grapple with without being reductive and simplistic mm-hmm. and avoiding. Cause I think it's a kind of, it's not an answer. It's a, it's a way of living. And, uh, and that's something I think in the past people did turn to other, to their elders, to wise people, to saints, to learn about. There are not a whole lot of folk around that I would say if somebody came to me, Oh, who do you know who can teach me how to die? Mm-hmm. I don't, I, I, there might be a few. I'm not mm-hmm. saying there aren't any, but this mm-hmm. is not a this is not a a wisdom or a skill that is widely disseminated or identified mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and I know you've you've talked about that yourself. I mean this mm-hmm. is why you've written the book you you mm-hmm. have and
0: mm-hmm. yeah I in my lament book, I caught a few people off guard when i Suggested that if people are church shopping, they should think about what congregation they want to die in, um, <laughs> in the sense of right. like, where can you go through the process of dying? Where do they have the Christian wisdom for that? But Well, you know. it, it, it's, it's
1: a powerful challenge, um, and one that I think many of us stopped and thought through. We, we'd feel a little bereft that if the answer wasn't as clear as we had hoped.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ephraim, for your work, which is deep and profound and really has been fruitful for my own reflection and others around me. And so I really recommend to listeners um, a time to keep. And in a different way, Ephraim takes up these questions in relation to the Holy Spirit in A Profound Ignorance, which is a profound book um, as well. So, Thank you again for joining me for this conversation. Well, Todd, thank
1: you. It's been a privilege to be with you in particular and to have a chance to respond and engage with your your own thoughts. I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for the End of the Christian Life podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends about it. You can find my book, The End of the Christian Life, on Amazon or at any other major retailer. Thank you and peace to you.